Kia ora koutou and welcome to 3 Mic'd Up Board Gamers, the best podcast coming to you from Aotearoa, New Zealand and the South Pacific. As always, I'm joined by my regular co-host, Conan McKegg. Howdy, howdy, howdy. And today we have a special guest, Sam McDonald, designer of Architects of the West Kingdom and Paladins of the West Kingdom and Circadian's First Light. Hello. Sorry. Our special guest at this time is Sam McDonald. He's most famous for being one of the testers here on 3 Minute Board Games. But you might know him from his other games that I've just mentioned. We're not playing and designing games. He plays the drums and works as a pastor. Here he is. The pastor of worker placement, the deacon of dice, the evangelist of engine builders, the minister of meeples, and my friend, Sam McDonald. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> hey, everyone. <laughs> hey, Sam. So, uh, so I, I have to interrupt here and say it does feel like with the Kiwi accent, you're like calling him like the linguini as opposed to... Religious pastor. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. actually use those same words interchangeably. Like, there's no difference in my pronunciation. There's zero. Pastor, pastor. Yeah, I yeah. just say, yeah. So, so it's, 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 it's that, that Kiwi habit of just kind of mushing, mushing, the, mushing, mushing those R's into, yeah. into the vowel. Yeah. <laughs> we apologize collectively for our mangling of the English language. And now, Sam is on the hot seat. Your questions will start very soon. Are you ready, Sam? Not sure. All right, there's one special rule for this uh, quiz. You cannot answer uh, to any of these questions, Shem Phillips. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Or Shem or any variation thereof. Okay. Your time starts now. What's your favorite board game mechanic? Variable player powers. What's your favorite musical genre? Post-rock. Post-rock. Yeah. What book, TV show, movie, etc. would you love to design a game based on? The Troy series by David Gimmel. What overseas designer would you most like to meet and exchange ideas with? Someone I haven't met. Yep. Bruno Catala. Who's the best drummer in the world? Josh Shroy. From? Falling Up. What mechanic or theme instantly sells you on a board game? I love space games for some reason. I looked at my top ten and there were probably about six or seven space games in there. Mark, Matthew, Luke, or John, what's your go-to gospel? John, for sure. On a scale of 1 to 10, how scary is it to go freelance? About a 7, I'd say. (laughs) Yeah. Marmite or Vegemite? Neither. Peanut butter. Peanut butter. Crunchy. And who would win in a fight, you or Shem? Me. (laughs) Playing by the rules. Yeah, playing by the rules. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Sam. Your time in the hot seat is over. (laughs) So we're going to start by talking to Sam about his games that he's designed to date and some of the things that are coming up in the future for him. So we'll start with his first game, Architects of the West Kingdom. And I'm just going to ask you one question straight out. First time designer, BGG Top 100. How the hell does that make you feel? Yeah, I'm pretty overwhelmed. It's, it's pretty amazing. Obviously, I wouldn't have been able to do it without Shem's help. Yep. Um, he's built up a really, really solid brand. And the game would be pretty trash without his streamlining and without his ideas. So, yeah. So, so talk me through that process. So who came up with the original sort of the core game design? Yeah, so I came up with the core game design. A few kind of ideas were I, I considered crucial for the game. So one was this idea that the game will flow really, really fast because all you're going to do on your turn is place one worker. And everyone's going to start with a ton of workers. So we started off with 20 workers and it actually stayed at 20, 20 workers. workers yeah. yeah, Well, 21 now. 
Yeah, true. <laughs> With Age of Artisans, yeah. Um, I had cosmic encounter pieces and you would stack them up. So you would see how many resources you're going to get by how many ships you've got stacked up. <laughs> so it was a really, really efficient way of doing it. We could have used less space if we used something like that. But no, the, the meeples are really cool. Um, so I started with that idea and also the other idea to keep the flow because you're going to have to get your workers back sometime yep. or else it's just going to be 20 rounds. This idea of what if we could capture people's workers and put them in prison? Yep. Um, so we had to kind of figure out how that works thematically, why you'd want to do that. But I really liked that idea that you could actually mess with people's stuff. So it wasn't just about blocking people in worker placement. Yeah, and that's one of yeah. my favorite things in, in architects is that if you see someone rocketing away, you can just go down, capture, like, nah, you're not getting two gold next turn. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I have to say, I can't think of many worker placement games that I've played that have so much interplayer interaction. Well, in there's, it. there's the crazy ones like uh, Argent, yeah. which is like player interaction out the wazoo. Yeah. Uh, but for a more conventional one, nah. Yeah. Uh, most of them are as passive aggressive a- as you get. You know, I block that space, that's it. But yeah, Architects has got that cool thing where you. Where you just get to, I don't know, antagonize people a little bit more than you would in the normal workplace <laughs> game. I always find it encourages quite a bit of smack talk at the table as well, <laughs> which is always good on a worker placement. Is seeing people yeah. like going, "Oh, I'm going to be placing my piece here." It's like, "Yeah, you try that, see where that gets you." Yeah. So I, yeah. I really like that. And I've actually got a terrible record with architects. Like my win rate <laughs> must be about ten percent. Really? Like, yeah, because. What people do is, maybe this is this is my explanation, but I might just suck at the game. I'm not sure. But what people do is they pick on the designer. So they're oh, going to yeah. capture all his workers, you know, and they're, yeah. and they're able to do that within the game. Yeah, because so, yeah. Yeah, I, I suppose there is, if someone does get ganged up on, it's pretty hard to defend against mm. that. But I, I imagine in most metas that's not going to happen unless people clearly see someone yeah. running away. And when people do that, I just hide in the black market because you can't capture people from there. Yeah. And I just end up with a bunch of debts, but that's okay, you know. That's, that's a strategy in and of itself. Yeah. Um, so the next one we're going to come to is Paladins, which has hit the stores recently um, and seems to be rocketing up the charts on BGG as well. Do you reckon you're going to get two games in the top 100? I don't know, but it seems to be doing pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. Been so, blown away by the reception, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, I kind of prefer Paladins design-wise, but I know I'm not going to play it as much. And I suspect that's because there's just that little bit of difference in playtime. Yeah, and setup and teaching and all of those yeah. things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely. Um, I don't know. Is this a? Is this a? Do you consider this a evolutionary step as you as a designer creating a, a more complex game? Or yeah, I, I think so. This was the first design that Shem and I did together from the start, and this one very much is a co-design. Like every part of it is a co-design. So we're really proud. This is kind of like our first baby. Yeah. <laughs> um, we were both very involved with architects, but yeah, this was from the start doing some design work, you know, talking about what the theme would be like, talking about what kind of mechanisms that we want. And so there was a lot of pushing and pulling and a lot of compromises, but it, it was a really, really fun process. So over or under 10 were fistfights. So. <laughs> Under. Under, under 10 yeah. so it was just sulking slamming of doors that kind of thing <laughs> yeah no and mostly Shin would just tell me to shut up and that would be that would be justified you know yeah I need to be told that from time to time for sure that's that's good alright and um, then the last one we're going to talk about uh, right now is Circadians which is very much your pet project uh, as you're the sole designer credited on this one yeah so Tell me a story of how the mechanics or the idea of circadians came to be. Yeah, this one was an interesting one. This one also, 
I started on a whiteboard. So I drew out the board fully on the whiteboard. And all I all so, I wanted to do... I'm just going to jump in there yeah. um, and point. You can't see it even though we're on screen. Right behind Sam, there's my whiteboard with a board game design on it. If you're designing board games, get a whiteboard, scribble the designs on them. It's a great way to start. Yeah. Back to you, Sam. Absolutely. Um, so I knew I wanted to have dice in the game. So I wanted to have dice as the workers, so dice placement game. But what I was really inspired by was an Age of Empires 2 random or custom scenario that me and my friend had made. And the way that the scenario worked, I don't know if you've played Age of Empires 2 or not. Yeah. yeah. Everyone would have this island that was completely safe. And we were we were not very confrontational with our economy. So everyone just wanted to build up their economy and they were completely safe. No one could get to them on that island. But then there was an island in the middle where everyone would fight. They would yeah. fight for control and that sort of thing. And so I liked that idea that was kind of fun that you've got the safe space to engine build. And then you've got another area where you're going to fight and compete. And so that went through many, many, many iterations. But you've got something similar in Circadians today where you've got your home base where you can have your dice as workers that are on the farms that no one can prevent you going to your farms and Mm -hmm. getting resources on those farms. And you can customize and add new farms. But then you've got the spot in the middle where there's six to ten worker placement spots. And they're fair game. So people compete over them. And that very much is traditional worker placement yep. style interaction. You're blocking. But there is one thing that I that I like in the game that I think not many other games have done very well in this in the traditional worker placement space, and that is the I think it's called the headquarters, the control room. I've forgotten the name of it. But there's a spot that you can go and you gain five water or two cards. And that allows you to go first in the next round. Yep. Because there's so many worker placement games where I'm just waiting for that first player marker to get to me. Yep. And I want to get to that spot first. But this allows you to jump in there the previous round, knowing that you can go first next round. There are a couple of other games that do that. I'm sure there was one we were playing recently. Uh, yeah. Where we were fighting over who got to be first player because no one wanted to be last player. Was it Dark Domains? Uh, Dark Domains does do that, um, where, uh, but uh, I think it does it in a slightly different way to Circadians, mm. uh, and I don't see, remember people fighting over it quite as much. Oh, I do. Oh, oh <laughs> I really? Do. Yeah, because it's one location we go and get two money yeah. and a first player marker, and going last in that game sucks. Yeah. 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 There are lots of games where they've got a mechanism that allows you to grab the first player marker. Yeah. But this this one, the first player marker keeps moving around in clockwise fashion, but you get to jump the queue. Ah, oh, that's first right. Yeah, in front no, of you're right. Yeah. No, I remember the one that you're, you're thinking of, and that was the one we play. That was Magnate. Oh, yeah. Magnate, there was a lot of competition for first player marker. Um, but that would, that uses a bidding mechanism as opposed right. to a placement mechanism. So and it's also not worker placement. But yeah, yeah I had first, first player stuck in my mind. Yeah. All right, and after the success of Arctics, Paladins, and Circadians, uh, you've decided to take the jump and become a freelance board game designer. And you said that was a 7 out of 10 in terms of terrifying. <laughs> uh, but how many how many projects have you got on the go? About three or four. It depends how you categorize what a project is. So I'll share one with you. Yep. And Shem might have shared this before. If he hasn't, well, this is this is the statement that we are going to be releasing cooperative scenarios for all three West Kingdom games. Nice. So is that one project or is that three? It's kind of (laughs) like three. Yeah. Uh, Because we have to design a cooperative scenario that fits for all three different games. But I'm really excited about that project. So 
it's a scenario, so it's going to be like an independent little pack with uh, stuff that you can use with your current version of Architects and Paladins to play a cooperative game. Absolutely, yeah. Trying not to add too many rules, yep. though some games needed more rules than others yeah, just to make it work. But that would come out um, March next year on Kickstarter with our Third West Kingdom Kickstarter. That will be in the box with that also has the system that allows you to play through the three games, which is the Rune Saga system from the North Sea. We're still doing that, yep. but we're also adding in a cooperative scenario for each of the three games. Cool. That, that sounds pretty awesome. And speaking of the uh, third game, you say it's going to get a Kickstarter in, in March? March? I think so, yeah. All right, well, yours truly here has played the third game, and uh, we're not really allowed to talk too much about it. But I'll say a few things, and one, it's a little different. Uh, it's not what you might expect to follow on Architectural Paladins. The setting's the same, and sort of the the, the, the ideas behind it the same, but it just feels a little different. And that's both, for me, its strength and possibly its weakness, because it is such a different design. It's yeah. I can't actually reference a game that it's like, which is kind of annoying. I'm talking really vague. I'm like vague booking here. Uh, but it's got things moving around, stuff to do. It's, there's a, so many options in the game. But at the end of the game, I wasn't saying, oh, this reminds me of. Yeah. This game is like. I didn't have a game I could sort of reach out and go, oh, yeah, this reminds me of that game or whatever. It's a, just, it's it's odd. <laughs> that, that doesn't mean bad. <laughs> it's actually quite, it was actually quite enjoyable. Yeah, that, that sounds kind of like a, a bit of a bonus, really, <laughs> is having a game where people go, well, no one's ever going to be able to sort of refer to it as another <laughs> game. They're going to be like, this is this game. Uh, I kind of like that idea. That sounds... Yeah, and there are some things that, that are quite similar to our previous games. Like, there is the engine building. Yeah. There are the different paths to victory. Yeah. I can say that we are going to have another mechanism to do with debts yep so you know how in paladins and architects there's these unique mechanisms around debts and risk we've got another mechanism which is a fresh one we think that is really cool around the debts and there's also a new card that's added which is the opposite of a debt it's a good thing it's a deed yep. so you're you're weighing up between deeds and debts and yep. it's quite interesting yeah and i thought that that balance of the game was was, was quite intriguing as well but it's one of those games I'm going to have to play it like three, four, five, six yeah. times before I really kind of can get an opinion on that. And you will hear more about uh, the third game of the West Kingdom on 3-Minute Board Games because you are going to send me a copy, right? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> I'll probably deliver it to you yeah. personally. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah. He's on the record. He's on the record now. All right. Thanks for your time, Sam. And... Uh, I don't have an Instagram, I don't have a Twitter, I don't have a YouTube, so people can't follow me. (laughs) (laughs) So I I really want you to put that right at the end. Where can people find you? Like, I'm I'm just not on social media, just just leave me the... Maybe this is why everyone talks about shit. (laughs) (laughs) It's the elephant in, the elephant in, the elephant in the room! The elephant in the room this week is... How jaded do you get when you play way too many board games? Uh, (laughs) And the idea behind that is that Sam's been designing a bunch of games. I play a bucket load of of games for the channel. Conan gets a bucket load of Kickstarter games and plays games for the channel with me. And, you know, when you're playing 100 games or you're spending hours and hours and hours playing and testing games, you can get a little bit jaded. And this can filter into your interactions with other people. So we're going to talk about... 
how not necessarily to be a dick just because you've played hundreds of games. <laughs> and I think I need to open this one up with an apology to Sam for our first um, playthrough of Circadians. Mm. And I was like, because of a dick move that Fraser did. <laughs> I can tell it wasn't necessarily that much of a dick move, but it was still a dick move. No, like, it wasn't a I'm never speaking to Fraser again kind of dick move. It was just like a, you know, when you're in a game and you get quite heated. And so that kind of really coloured my impression of the game for quite some time until um, Jay brought it over to our place and we played it with Nasir and yep. myself. And we had such an awesome time the second yeah, time. And yeah. that was kind of like, I was like, oh my God, why was I so critical the first time? <laughs> so I think that there is kind of that thing where you can get quite overcritical about a game because you've just played so many games and you're, you're looking for you're looking for that high again it's it's it is kind of like that drug analogy where the high becomes harder and harder to chase for me it's um because you see so much uh and you're tuning into being a critic you start focusing on the negative yeah so you're like this could have done this better eh, therefore it's bad which is not a great headspace to be in but for me it's it's sitting down and playing with people who aren't necessarily massively into board games and not being a giant dick about it and just you know they're having fun like yeah. i played a game of wingspan up in hamilton with a whole bunch of people and i really wasn't having a great time but i kind of had to keep the face on and let them let them have their fun that's the thing i need to learn to just close my mouth you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was just about to tell you to shut up <laughs> i'm not really a negative person but i can't switch that kind of game design brain off yeah and and I'm, I haven't always been a game designer, but I've always looked at games and thought, how can we improve this? And I'm actually the same with movies. And my friends won't watch movies with me because I'll only watch about five movies a year because I'll have to check the reviews before watching them. <laughs> but so I'll play a game and then I'll say, oh, there was a problem with this and there was a problem with this. And why can't I just let people have fun and just enjoy the game? You know, I don't need to say those things because no one else even noticed those problems. Yeah. And it, it's it's. It's like being the smart guy in the room who just has to inform everyone, oh, no, you can't possibly be having fun with that because it's got a problem. Well, this is kind of topical because I've been having a bit of a gripe on Twitter this week about friends who, when you put a joke up, like a meme or something, they have to be like, oh, I can improve that by then adding an over-intellectualized, over-analyzed addition to the joke. And I'm just like, it's a joke. Just, just let it be. <laughs> it's just, and I think that there is that that habit when you when you think and analyze things a lot that it is, becomes really easy to be part of your brain's like focused on the game, but there's this other sort of distracted part that's deconstructing everything that you yeah. that you're doing and going. How would have I made this more yeah. fun? Maybe that's why I love coming here and playing games so much because there is a freedom, there is a permission to after we played the game, we can rip it to shreds. We oh, yeah. can talk about it. No one's going to get offended. We can also say the things that we loved about it. Yep. And and I know that, yeah, no one will get offended by that. Yeah, yeah. that's because I don't recall those sessions. Because, <laughs> <laughs> because I imagine after some uh, gameplay sessions around here, some of the things that are said uh, get quite vigorous. <laughs> can I just point out that I think it was the last game we played, because I have a really creative habit of throwing innuendo into practically everything we play we were um i don't know what it was but um jay paused and waited and waited and waited and i looked up and he was like come on i, <laughs> I was like 
this obvious obvious line just hanging there and I'm just looking at him like where are you? <laughs> this is clearly the line like someone says something about someone's mother and it's just sitting there and you haven't said a thing. But I think that that kind of helps um, take the mind off being too critical in the gameplay moment because I think if, we're, if, if you're going to do a review of a game you need to be able to review it from the perspective of people who just played the game right. and enjoyed themselves. And yeah. so I think um, a lot of the banter is kind of a way to distract that critical thinking mm. mind. Yeah. And I also think one of the reasons I like getting a different group of people in, so it's not mm. necessarily just yeah. you and I, Conan, and the same two or three people each time, is because you do get those dis- different perspectives. Like Peter, for example, uh, he's not into the big heavy games. Yeah. And he brings that perspective through loud and clear. He's like, yep, I can see why people would like that, but I personally hated it because it was math. That's a perspective we need to hear. Absolutely. Nasir's got quite a very broad passion for games. So she doesn't really do criticism of most games that she plays, but if she doesn't like a game, she'll be she'll be able to deconstruct down to the final T. And so often I find if there's a game that I played and I've been like, I didn't really like that game, but I just don't know why, she'll be able to just Tell you what, verbalize yeah. it so eloquently. And yeah, because she's so open to games, yeah. there's a lot of games that you'll play and you'll go, oh, I didn't really like it. And she goes, oh, I really loved it. That was really cool. So I think she brings a really interesting perspective when she comes around as well. I guess that's the thing. It's about not necessarily just having... Well, you're not Beardy, but Beardy white dudes uh, who played <laughs> hundreds of board games uh, sitting down, uh, yeah. analysing it from the Beardy board game man perspective. It's good to get those different diverse voices yeah, in. for sure. Yeah. And I wonder how you do that with testing. Like, like most of your testing's done in-house with you and you and, she, and that's like the core, core testing yeah. practice. But when you're taking it out and you're showing other people, do you try to get like uh, a mix of mix of player experience and mix of, of backgrounds and other things absolutely like one of my testing groups is my wife's parents so my in-laws oh, yeah. and <laughs> and so they they're not gamers they haven't been gamers but they're becoming gamers <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's great to see what their kind of natural strategies are you yeah. know what i mean and so yeah that's that's a wonderful thing that uh, that you know to be able to play with my in-laws and they enjoy it and they've actually backed one or two kickstarters oh, yeah. now so <laughs> They, they ordered uh, my wife and I a game which is about scooping up cat poop and putting it in a litter box, which is my life. So, uh, at home, yeah. That was great. So, do you find, like, with um, playtesting, then, if you get, like, a really just unanimously positive reviews does that kind of is that like a yes we've done it or is that kind of a oh, we need to find someone else to have a look at it because it can't be that good kind of thinking like mm. what goes on in your mind when you get that kind of response if you get that kind of response i should say yeah if i could this is going to sound really really arrogant but I, <laughs> the person's opinion that matters the most i feel is my own yeah yep. and and i feel like i've got a good sense for when if i don't like the game i know there's a problem yep. um but then I want to get other people's perspectives on how is the game to learn? What was fun for you? How could we improve, you know, um, like the colors, the graphic design, all those sorts of things? Because I really, really value that. And, and I want to see how they're having fun. But, but at the end of the day, I think I've got a decent sense of if this is the kind of game that I'm happy with or not. Yeah. As, as a writer um, for like web projects and stuff, I totally get that. Because I think 
there's a real risk when you're creating any kind of going into any kind of creative endeavor to be trying too hard to please your audience oh god yes yeah and then you kind of lose your love of what you're producing and it comes through because then the audience will see that you're just sort of pushing out something that's yeah. made by committee so i think yeah you've got to be able to to have that boundary where you go i know that this is what i wanted it to be i think that's yeah yeah and that they might sense. want to fix it in a direction that you don't want it to go yeah in, yeah you know? yeah I, and i think that's just a general creative thing like you've got a vision of what you want this to be you've got a, a sort of end goal in mind and people might go oh this is not good because of x well, it might actually also be X that's the real problem. That might just be what they're focusing on. Mm. The actual reason behind why they're, they're not enjoying it could be something quite different. And, um, and, I, and I think that's where fe- feedback is useful yeah. in that it's not about are they um, – you're looking for them to say, I get what you're trying to do and, yes, and it's yeah. achieving what you're trying to achieve. And if you're not getting that, then that's when you listen to the feedback and you go – okay, they're saying something that's saying they totally don't get what, what I'm trying to achieve here. Is there something I can do to help better communicate that across? Or is this a case of this is not the game for them mm. or this is not the yeah, the project yeah. for them? Yeah. And trying yeah. to make something that's for everyone is just going to make something that's for no one. Yeah. yeah. And the three, the three bits of feedback that I get most um, often from Shem, which I find very helpful, is it's too fiddly, it's too rulesy, and we can't show that with icons. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm learning a lot from him. Yeah. Great. Yeah. All right. All right. So our next segment is Conan's Kickstarter Corner, or Conan Kickstarter Connoisseur, where Conan runs through a bunch of games that he's found on Kickstarter that he thinks is vaguely interesting. Over to you, Conan. Yes, yes. So um, I've actually got uh, three games uh, to chat about today. Uh, the first one is Mint Condition Comics. Uh, it's currently on Kickstarter. They've got about 20 days left on their um, thing at the moment. This it's isn't a- related to like mint delivery or... No, no, no. It's <laughs> completely different. So it's, um, it's like a set collecting game where you're... All the players are comic book collectors, and all the cards are actual covers of various editions of comic books, and they're different printings and so on. So there's this whole player trading aspect of Mm it. Um, uh, So it sounds really, really fun. Um, Sounds a little bit Argenti or Museum. A little bit Museum, I think, but without quite the complexity that museum has i think it's designed to be a lot faster because there's no boards there's no laying out your cards in a specific way um but there is uh this cool thing where of course they've gone to the trouble of going okay here's a comic line and we're gonna have the various different issues of that comic line and there's like about i think uh two or three versions of each card uh, and then, of course, there'll be original print, second printing, all that kind of thing. That sounds um, pretty cool. So it sounds When I said cool. Argenite, you meant Millennium Blades. Ah, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Same um, publisher. How does it look? It looks really good. Like, the artwork is solid, and the box design that they're showing is, is quite attractive. So it's definitely one of those... This is a game I would not... Um, be trying to explain to people i only paid 20 dollars for this as i'm putting it out on the table. <laughs> that's great um, because like there are some really good games that you can get and they 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 do look like 
clearly only one person's done all the yeah. design and the and the work and it's really like this is their first game kind of thing and this one looks a lot more like you're gonna find this on a shelf in a game store okay so that was mint edition comics mint edition uh mint condition comics mint condition comics yeah right, what's the next game one? about comic books uh ducks and toe so have you heard of this? No. This is amazing. So <laughs> Ducks and Toe is kind of a um, it's a competitive game where you're wandering around a park, um, trying to attract ducks so that they follow you, <laughs> and then taking them to ponds so that they go. And then you're it, it's again kind of a it's got a really interesting mechanic where you build up um, cards of. Uh, different patterns of ducks and then there's like a little kind of plastic overlay that you put over the top and if you get the ducks in the right pattern you get bonus points get all your ducks in a row oh my lord and and all the all the movement meeples that you have they're like they're like a normal meeple but they have like this little plastic tray that comes out behind them that you put little duck meeples in so that as you move them around the board the ducks are following you around the board you can't make this up you can't make this up so that one looks really fun. I think that that will be one of those ones that you, you kind of pull out. Um, yeah. And, and people are just like, what the heck is this? And you're like, this is just going to be fun for like 45 minutes yeah. or so. What do you mean? Yeah. What, what the heck is this? This is ducks in a row. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm currently looking at my dollars yeah. to see whether I can back that one because I, I think that that's going to be quite a fun one. And I can totally see a lot of our regular board gaming group yep. um, quite getting into that gaming. Enjoying the absurdity of playing a game about being chased by ducks. There is another game that I saw um, called, uh, I think it's called Ballerina, which is about training ballerinas to prepare for a performance on stage. And the whole board is basically starts off from the dancing school through to the stage. Right. But I haven't read up enough about it to really speak on it more than that, because I was kind of like... Uh, I'm gay, but am I that gay? <laughs> um, <laughs> speaking of that, we also need to play Pretty Porter at some point. Yes, yes, Pretty Porter. Uh, that is a that is a very fun game. It looks um, amazing. Yeah, I really yeah. want to try it. It's it's really it's a really solid um, game that I think catches its theme really well and has some great economic um, play in it. Yep. Like there's a lot of a lot more thinking than just pretty garments. So we'll have to give it a go and see if we can't get it on the yeah. channel. So my final one, the yep. third one, um, is Dawn of Madness, which is um, sounds manly. Yeah, it's very manly, isn't it? <laughs> um, this really captured my interest because I'm really in a cosmic horror um, vibe at the moment. I recently uh, got into the Arkham Horror LCG card game. It's a great game, which is a great game. I've got um, Particarcosa to play through, but I'm still doing the Night of the Zealot. Yep. Beginner campaign. But anyway, um, so Dawn of Madness is a kind of uh, prequel to the Deep Madness game that recently shipped out um, a month or two ago, I think. Yeah, not familiar with it. So Deep Madness is um, a mini kind of dungeon crawly narrative cooperative game. It sounds uh, like most games on Kickstarter, yeah. but go on. Yeah, <laughs> set, uh, set in a... Um, underwater facility that has of course accidentally um opened a gateway to eldritch horrors and these kind of cthulhu inspired monsters are like this bioshock doom yeah basically (laughs) uh so dawn of madness is kind of a really curious one it reminded me a bit of etherfields actually in concept 
So the whole idea in Dawn of Madness is that there's this group, this um, cult that's trying to um, find a way to make humans immortal by entering another dimension. And their experiments to reach there have, of course, driven some people mad. And uh, you're basically playing through these people waking up in an alternate dimension created from their madness. And so from the looks of it, as they go through the adventure, the narrative adventure, they slowly warp and become more and more twisted versions (laughs) of themselves. Uh, and there's all these kind of Cthuloid type monsters creeping so, around in so the darkness. One of those ones where you're laying cards out like seven continents? Uh, or... Not quite. It's got a central board, and then it looks like you have a have kind of like a card board of the map of the ma- the mind map of the person whose scenario you're currently doing, and so that goes on the board. Uh, and then you you go through all those scenarios, and each scenario has its own book, and it's got like a whole narrative pick a path style adventure connected to it hmm. so i'm intrigued by it yeah. um, and i will report back because i'm kind of trying to decide whether i'm going to do a late pledge mm. of etherfields because um awakens realms just has done no wrong yeah. for me recently yeah. like yeah, Lords of Hellas, This War of Mine, freaking Nemesis, oh, ne- yeah. which I'll be talking about more later tonight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so Etherfields is kind of like, yeah, it's got a lot of minis, and I'm kind of getting a bit over the whole buying games with lots of minis thing, but it's yeah. Awakened Realms, and they do some really, really cool yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's why I went Potato Grail over, over Etherfields. Yeah. Yeah, because it, it wasn't so mini-driven. Yeah. But those are my games for, yeah. for tonight. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. <laughs> All right, and the next thing up is what have you been playing recently? And we'll start with Sam. What have I been playing? Well, one game I've been playing is Hanami Koji, which is this cute little two-player card game. Hanami Koji? And Hanami Koji, have you heard of it? No, no, I have heard of it, but I don't know much about it. It's It probably takes about 10 minutes, and each player just has four actions. And they're the same four actions. Um, well, each player has those same four actions, and it's kind of got some I-cut-you-choose mechanisms, and you're, you're hiding some cards, basically, in front of um, this row of, I think they're called geishas, um, Japanese ladies. Yep. And you're basically bidding on them. But your opponent knows a little bit of information. They'll put out a few cards that you pick. You pick first, and they pick some. And it's just a really, really clever two-player game. I, I highly recommend it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. good two-player games that have got a short playtime and a lot of decisions in them, that, that, they're rare. Yeah. Mm. I think it's got less set up than something like Seven Wonders Jewel. Much less, yeah. yeah. That was always my problem with it. Uh, for me, I have been playing a bunch of different things, but the one I'm going to call out because of the audience and everyone telling me I have to play a Stefan Field game or I'm not a real gamer, I played Castles of Burgundy, everyone. Finally bloody played it. And it's just pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you say that reluctantly, don't you? Oh, no, it's not that. I mean, the game is... Is, is ugly like it yeah. is it is one ugly game but first crack i got 200 and something points which i think is pretty reasonable but yeah a kind of what a great game yeah like i can see why this is such a well-regarded game and yeah i i just have this problem when everyone tells me to do something i instinctively tell them not nah. so because everyone's been telling me oh you've got to play a stephen fell game you've got to play castles of burgundy i'll be like no 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 not playing it <laughs> Still play Carcassonne. 
<laughs> I'm still to um, play that one, but our Friday group, um, it's always the go-to. If nobody can decide what to play, there's always four players who will inevitably go, Castles of Burgundy, and then they will play that for about four or five hours. Yeah. yeah. So they'll just play it over and over and over. So and over. clean and combo-tastic. Yeah. And one thing I've noticed with Stefan Feld's designs is he doesn't have many resources in his games. Mm-hmm. And the resource is just your time and your actions. Yep. You get stuff, you get points, and there's no feel of accumulating stuff so that you can do a bigger action, but there are still a lot of chaining of actions, and yeah. that's so satisfying. Yeah. 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 Um, legitimately enjoyed that game. Gladly play it again. Um, yeah, top notch. Fair uh, well, the um, it's actually the latest game that I played uh, that Messia backed, and it's uh, Coloma. Coloma. Yeah. Oh, that's got the Mechos artwork, yeah? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really, really good game. So you're basically like, um, I guess, Frontiersman in the Wild West, and it's got this just absolutely fantastic kind of worker placement mechanic where you have a rondel in the middle of the middle of the board, which, by the way, has moving parts, which, by the way, are connected to the board by magnets. Oh my god! So there's, <laughs> there's no like little spindle or anything yep. in there causing warping on the th- board. It just sits flat. The wheels turn around really easily. Um, and it was like it's such an elegant and simple solution. Why don't more game designers do that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like so, the whole idea of it is that you have five actions you can choose, and each action has two stages. So there's the basic action and then there's kind of like a boom action and the boom action just essentially allows you to do the action twice but in a slightly different way and what happens is everyone secretly on their own little dials dial in which action they're going to take and then they all get revealed simultaneously and whichever action the most players do gets its boom action locked off so you can't do the boom action so there's this um neat kind of um poker face kind of thing you're doing where you're like uh and so interesting ways to block players as well is to be like oh well i want to do this thing but i don't need to do it twice but i know blah blah needs to do it twice so i'm gonna do it because i know they're gonna do it it's a little bit of the the psych out game in like in roll for the galaxy or race for the galaxy where you're picking what turn card you're gonna use yeah knowing well I want to ship, but I know they need to ship more. Yeah. So, and I love that decision. Yeah. Space. And yeah. there's so many different ways to win. Like, there's not like a, there doesn't appear to be a really clear, this is the only way to win the game. There's lots of different decisions you can make. So, like, you can be, you can go on expeditions to check out rivers, or you can build um, bridges over rivers and get lots of victory points that way, or you can build up your town and you get lots of victory points that way, or you can, travel around and colonize different parts of the countryside and you'll get points mm-hmm. that way. So there's lots of various different ways you can get those points you need. And uh, so you're not immediately competing with each other. And, um, yeah, I highly recommend it. It's a great game. It looks great. Yeah, yeah. it's beautiful. And the next segment is what's new on the shelves. And I'm going to cover three games off very quickly. And the first one is Black Angel, which uh, a lot of people are talking about as quite a good game. I found a copy of this dinged up in a board game store, and it had 40% off, so I picked that up. I wasn't one actually on my radar, but it does look pretty cool. Next one is 
a bit like Castles of Burgundy, it's brass. Uh, it's another one of those games every bugger's been telling me, you need to play brass. Why haven't you played brass? Why isn't there a free brass in three minutes? Uh, so I got the um, Birmingham, which is the a newer the, one, the yeah. newer flasher one. Yeah. Um, so I picked that up as well. And the last one to cover off is Stronghold, which I got on a discount bin, Stronghold 2nd Edition. And I want to give this a game as soon as possible because as of recording this, the Stronghold Undead Kickstarter is currently on. And I actually want to see if that's worth getting into. So might as well play Stronghold, see if the game's for me before sinking money on a second version of Stronghold. Now, is that published by Stronghold Games? Yes. So maybe we should have a game that's called Garfield. <laughs> <laughs> a self-titled album you know? yeah. board game about game design yeah. <laughs> uh, could you imagine anything worse yeah <laughs> oh. the, I actually saw a um, I think it's on uh, mobile a, um, a video game about board game design <laughs> <laughs> oh not good So on to the uh, top five or our five favorite games around variable player powers. Now, the definition for variable player powers is not asymmetry. So it's not games like Root where the play style is completely different. It's where the core game is the same for each player, but it's modified by a power. And we're going to talk about five games we either really like or dislike or just find really interesting in this particular field and i just want to bring up that uh as research for this segment uh i did come across a reddit um discussion about uh variable power games and oh. virtually everyone was talking about asymmetrical games it's <laughs> <laughs> like but that's not variable power like there is a distinct difference war of the ring is not a variable pl- uh, player power game it's an asymmetric game and that's out of scope for this yeah no one's scribbling to update that. Oh, let's take that off. <laughs> <laughs> I nearly put sidereal confluence in. Well, that was got that got suggested as a variable power game, and I was like, I, I, I think don't that's think it, it is. Yeah, it's yeah. asymmetry. It's asymmetry. So it's what, a spectrum, though, right? Like, it is a spectrum. Is it, <laughs> it is a spectrum. Yeah. yeah, but we're going to try and stick to that definition that I've put out there, and we're going to start with our guest Sam. All right. So my number five is Robinson Crusoe Adventures on the Cursed Island. Oh, yeah. A game I really like and I've never played. So there'll be a bunch of different powers. It's a cooperative game, but you might have the cook and you might have the soldier and the explorer. And there's this track that's called morale, I think it is, and that governs how much determination people get, which is a currency that they can spend. And that currency of determination is kind of their variable power currency. So Mm -hmm. it works in different ways for different people. And what I love is just how thematic it feels. Like, you're constantly getting crushed on this island, but the cook can make a nice meal, (laughs) and everyone's morale goes up a little bit, you know? And the carpenter's like, oh, I'm going to build this extra thing, and I'm going to use my determination to remove the cost of something. That's right, that's right. And I just love how thematic it is. And you do kind of feel like the cook. And and the cook, um, the team's morale drops if the cook takes damage the most. Because it's like, well, the explorer, he can go out and explore, he can take a few wounds, but the cook, man, if he's unwell, we're not going to have meals. So the whole morale is going to drop. And I love that. Yeah, Yeah, that's good. All right, go ahead. Okay, so I'm going to open up with one that I think no one else will have, and that's Monster Slaughter. Yeah, Um, definitely not. Which Is that Monster Slaughter or Monster's Laughter? monster slaughter <laughs> <laughs> so uh it's kind of a oh, i forget 
what we identified it as. It's actually like a, a um, Nasir always says, oh, it's just this game, but, you know, prettier. But I can't remember what the game is now, so I feel really <laughs> bad for not remembering that. Sorry, Nasir. Um, but basically, you're all playing competing monster families who are trying to eat five students hiding out in the cabin. <laughs> um, I have not heard of this. It's great. And you basically, what you're doing is getting set collection kind of a bit like, um, like I say, I can't quite remember it, but like the, the idea is that you're playing cards to figure out what room the students are hiding in. And then if the students revealed, you're trying to attack them. And you're also trying to play cards for the students that drive back the other monsters. Yep. Mm. Um, and so you have these various decks for each of the room and you're drawing up from the decks. But each of the monsters have their own sort of set of powers that allow them to bend the game. So like, for example, ghosts can go through walls so they don't have to break down doors to get into the next room. And werewolves um, are like really aggressive and vampires are really like, mind controlling making characters move to places they want them to move and so there's like um in the kickstarter i think they had something like 12 different monster families oh, nice. they had a massive pile of monsters mm. right down to gremlins <laughs> um and so it's really good because each of the families really feels like that type of monster and yeah. so you get this really fun sort of dynamic of all the uh, of all these monsters kind of getting into these Bites while the kids are trying to run and run to various parts of the rooms. Um, oh, that sounds good. Yeah. All right, my first one, and I've picked like five themes, and I'm going to talk about a specific game in each theme. And the first one is emergent variable player powers, and for that I've picked Lords of Hellas. And the reason I've picked that is Lords of Hellas is an area control game, and you do start with a character that's got a unique power, but as you build the monuments and temples, there's what's called a powers draft. So you deal out five awesome powers. Oh, First yeah. player gets to pick one, adds that to their thing, and it goes around. So your variable player powers actually evolve over the game. So you start with one point of difference. Very early on, you'll get your second, and then you'll get a third and a fourth as the game progresses. Mm. So you get to design and sculpt your your sort of unique faction. And that, for me, just adds a massive amount of replayability because, yeah, you might have played this one character before, but you haven't played them with this power, this power, and this power, this power. Yeah. So how is this different from just an engine building game uh, where they're kind of also emergent powers come through? It's it's not entirely different, but it's it's just because it only happens once or twice through the game. Right. right. Very set points. And you do only end up with three or four at the end of the game. Right. So there is, there is a hard cap and it's just a natural progression of the game. And because everyone's getting them at the same time. Yeah, I did love that about the game. It's like something happened and everyone gets stuff you yeah know? you know there's an incentive to be first but everyone else is happy that that was it a technology draft or something like that where you're you're passing the card blessing around. draft blessing draft that's the one yeah that was a great part about the game yeah all right sam your number two ah my number two or my number four is um terra mystica which yeah. maybe is my favorite game yeah and so each player is playing a different race maybe you're the halflings or the dwarves or the giants and each race has an affinity for a different terrain type, and that's what they wanted to build their buildings on. And so they wanted to be terraforming all the other terrain types, taking them away from the other players and making them their color. Yep. Um, and so there's 10 variable player powers in the game, but as well as the different affinity for the color, each um, faction has a passive ability, 
and each faction also has an emergent ability when they build their stronghold or the fortress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I love that combination both of the passive, the emergent, and then the different color that they're going for. And maybe with this game, I'll point out why I love variable player powers so much just in general. That is, it makes setup so exciting. Yeah. Because you're looking at all these powers and you're thinking, what do I want to play? Yeah. Never never deal them out randomly. Maybe deal out too randomly, but give players a choice what yeah. they want to play. Yeah. And there's an excitement there. But also when you're packing it away, you're thinking... Who do I want to play next, next time? Yeah. So it's both the hook at the start and the <laughs> hook, hook at the end, end yeah. which I find just incredible. Yeah, yeah. no, I completely agree with, agree with that. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm going to go, they're not in any particular order, so my next one's Black Rose Wars. Which is another one I'm supposed to play with you at some point. Yeah. Um, the really cool thing about Black Rose Wars is that uh, you're picking an individual mage and... Each mage has their own special spell. So they have a spell that only they can cast and nobody else can. And then they kind of have a mm-hmm. leaning towards one or two other schools of magic. Mm-hmm. And so as you're playing the game, um, you're building up your own grimoire of unique spells. So it is very much, again, a kind of emergent power thing. But those personal spells kind of um, inspire you to play the game in different ways to get victory points. Yep. So like one mage might go on a trashing spree where their whole goal is to get their victory points by smashing every single room to smithereens but the next person who plays that mage might play them as a shapeshifter and so they're going around beating guys up instead of smashing rooms and this game sounds really cool and it is really (laughs) really awesome because there is this beautiful thing where you can just swap out spell decks to have different schools of magic and to me, the way that it uses variable powers is to make every game you play feel different yep. and feel mm. fresh again. Yeah, and yeah. there's very few games I play that are like that, where the core mechanic doesn't really change, but because of the way the variability occurs, you just you just have a different game experience every time you play it. And it's not asymmetrical because everyone's attempting the same thing. They're getting to the same point. They're following yeah. the same rules, but... They're all getting their own. They all get to d- dictate their own variability in a really customizable way. Yeah, so, great. Yeah. Sounds awesome. My next one is characters. So characters is the sort of theme I'm going for. And the game I'm going to pick. I mean, I could have picked Arkham Horror. I could have picked a bunch of different games, especially co-ops. But I'm going to go with the Captain is Dead. Ooh. And the Captain is Dead is is sort of like 19 characters in the original game and 21 in the expa- in the in the third game, Dangerous Planet. And they're just so different and they capture so many different tropes within the, the Star Trek universe. And they also have like specific ranks. So there's like seven colors um, you can play with and they represent like the command level, the engineering level and um, security level all the way down to the um, medical officers and that. But within each color, there are three different varieties uh, of character you can play. And the variable powers aren't huge. But they make such a big difference to how the game feels and plays. Mm, like yeah. if you've got the the engineer involved in the game, then fixing stuff's a hell of a lot easier. If you've got the science officer involved, then doing all the anomalies and stuff just becomes a heck of a lot easier as well. And having this team of specialists running around the board doing their specialist task, uh, for me, that's what makes the Captain is Dead really cool and such a great co-op game is that everyone's got their character and they've got their job. Yeah. So the mm. engineer, I'm the one that's got to fix the jump drive. Meanwhile, the weapons officer's like, well, I'm going to go kill all the aliens. So everyone immediately, even if they don't know how to play, they look at the character and go, I'm the weapons officer. 
I know my job is. Mm. And do, do you find when you play it that uh, people tend to sort of have a little zone on the board that yeah. they, they basically just stick to that zone and they go nowhere else? <laughs> <laughs> a, little, a little bit, a little bit. Well, because you've got to move around to, to pick up cards and stuff to yeah. be able to do your job. But you like, like the engineer usually stays at the back of the ship and doesn't really go up the front yeah. ever unless things become but absolutely yeah. dire. But yet everyone's so, yeah. busy all the way through the game because yeah. there's mm-hmm. so much happening. My pet peeve is when people do that in Spirit Island, when they say, this is my part. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we actually work together in this game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I also find the the one floor with Captain is dead, uh, which is often why um, I'm less keen to play it when people are like, oh, let's play Captain is dead, is that it is an alpha gamer game. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, we do tend to play with some really hardcore alpha gamers. Well, that's, like, that's, one oh, my preferred, that. <laughs> that's one of my preferred way to play it is seven-hand co-op. Um, seven-hand seven co-op solo. <laughs> <laughs> You're a monster, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number three, Sam. My number three is Eon's End. Dying. Which oh, is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a cooperative game. It's a deck builder. And... Each person has both a special ability, which they can charge up with charges, and then once they're fully charged up, they can spend those charges to use that ability, and they also have a unique card. But I I especially love the special ability that they charge up with charges, because what they've done in the game design is that most of those special abilities actually help out other players. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's kind of like, I'm going to heal you for four, or I'm going to give you three more cards. So now your hand is eight cards instead of five. And these are really, really strong. And so what what happens is people are really grateful. Like, oh, thanks. (laughs) That was really kind of you. And and so I'll contrast that with a game, another co-op game uh, called Magic Maze. And with Magic Maze, everyone's got a different direction that they can go. But the feeling that you've got with that game is entitlement. Someone will do a good move, and instead of having gravi- gratitude, you'll be like, you should have done that three seconds ago. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so I like the kind of how Eon's End kind of fosters this cooperative yeah. kind of environment. Camaraderie. Yeah. 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 I, I also have to say Eon's End has, in my experience, the, hands down, the best legacy game I've Ooh, played yet. Have not the, tried it the yet. The legacy yeah. Aeon's End is just awesome. <laughs> awesome. Like, there, there's a point in the game where you open up the little envelope and you play through it and then you read this thing in the envelope and you're like, oh my fucking god this just makes me the happiest person ever <laughs> and i i just i can't think of many games that manage to weave its narrative into the actual gameplay mechanics yeah. and the way you interact with the components mm. um and i really don't want to spoil any more than that have you played than, say, pandemic play- season one yes. just so i can get some perspective yes okay, so i have I played pandemic have- season one and i loved the twist in that I wasn't as much of a fan of Pandemic Season 2, and I think Season 2 suffered from trying to be too much like Season 1 than, uh, in the way that it was handling its unique stuff. And so we, we it, it has this period where it hits a lull mm. if your group's not pacing themselves correctly. Mm. Um, whereas, yeah, Legacy, uh, and Legacy just, oh, <laughs> perfect. And... <laughs> One of the very few games that I just think has, like, the perfect end to a legacy game. Like, you really walk away from the end of the game going, that was one hell of a good game. 
And I think Season 1 Pandemic is the only other ga- legacy game I've played that really had that. I'm really right. satisfied with how that game ended. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, yeah. Got to check, check it out. out. Yeah. All right. Your number three, Gareth. My number three, which is probably my number one, um, but I thought I'd bring it up now because it's a it's a good one to bring up, is Nemesis. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, we love Nemesis here. Nemesis is just such a solid, solid game for... Um, being thematic it really gets that people stuck on a spaceship with a hideous monster vibe and then suddenly finding out that it's more than one um (laughs) each of the each of the uh various characters you can play has their own unique deck but they're all basically the same cards bar i think it's two or three cards will be yes i think it's three three or four yeah yeah so they have a few of their own special powers and then they've got like standard actions and the game's got this really neat sort of tension mechanic where you're spending cards. So you've got to decide from my hand, which of these cards am I going to use? Which of these cards am I going to sacrifice to use the cards that are in my hand? Um, and I really enjoy that. And it's also great because the, with the various alien types now with the expansion... Uh, each of the aliens have their own variable powers. And in fact, awesome. they have variable weaknesses yeah. as well. So every time you play it, it's a, it's a unique experience. But I, I, actually, I actually find with the uh, the characters, which is just those three cards and, and some slight wording changes on some of the other ones. So some people's search cards are slightly different. Yeah. Um, and then the quests that they get and the quest items, it's not a lot, but it really does make you feel like if you're playing the scout, you feel differently than yeah. if you're playing the, the scientist. You really do. Yeah. Well, it's like um, when we played with the new characters in there and like the CEO character yeah. plays completely different to any other character in the game. Yeah. And it, really, it's just he's just got a few couple of different things that he does with his cards. He's not like, he doesn't have like a major pile of rewrites to the rules. Yeah. It's just a little bit different. But it's. It makes a big difference in, in the play experience. And it's a very tight game. Yeah. Like, I think there's very few games that have such a well-tuned way of getting getting across its its theme. Yeah. Uh, for me, the Nemesis is what I call a moment generator. So it's a game that generates memorable moments just about every time you play it. Yeah. Like, the mechanics, they're pretty good, but... It's just those moments at the end of the game. You're like, oh, I remember when that alien, you yeah. were there, and this thing happened there, and the vent popped out. And, ah! it's, it's all those stories. That's my what... next to a moment generator as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, all right. I have to say, my favorite moment still is probably when my friend Simon was playing it, and he got really cocky because he was playing the soldier, and he thought he could take on an alien. So he goes out, and he's like, firing away, and he's doing heaps of damage, but the alien's not dying, and then it killed him. And we we're all like, we told you to run. <laughs> Uh, all right, so from a high to a low, uh, I'm going to talk about variable player powers that throw games out of balance. Mm-hmm. And I could have picked uh, some uh, examples like Twilight Imperium 4. I uh, will fight anyone on the moon who thinks that the Sadric Nor are equal to the Yolnar. Um, that game, the Yolnar are just so much better than most of the factions in there. But the game I'm going to talk about is Tapestry. And... <laughs> Tapestry for me, fundamentally, the factions, the variable player powers between the different groups produce such diverse scores that I feel like at game setup, if I've drawn the Futurists, I'm probably going to win. I have to play poorly and other people have to play better in order for it to be an even playing field. And I think that really bugs me in the game. 
when there are variable player powers and yet yeah, I don't mind some variance between them they don't have to be homogenous because that's the whole point of variable player powers but when some are so demonstratively measurably better than others I just have to think what are you doing yeah what well doing? we we did the because I after the game that we played where we all sat in stunned silence afterwards going well we kind of had fun <laughs> um i played again because i kind of was like oh, it's such a beautiful game and and i really want to give it a give it a good college try uh so i played it with nasir and she got the futurists completely randomly and i got the architects um and the difference in um advantage was just so blatantly obvious because i think uh, if you look at uh, someone did like a whole um statistical yeah. observation i think architects actually came down as the high, as the lowest performing faction and futurists as the highest performing faction so we randomly ended up <laughs> with like the dream awfulness yeah. <laughs> for it and yeah because the architects uh, the sorry the futurists start with have just one bonus basically at the start but it's such a major it's huge resource advantage like it's the effect it's effectively like giving them i think we worked it out to be 21 resources for free all right that sounds like a lot I <laughs> in, a, in a game where you're generally earning like what eight or nine resources a turn yeah so they basically start off with um two and a bit turns ahead of everyone else so it's like someone starting in feudal age and age of empires yeah <laughs> everyone else yeah, is yeah. in dark age yeah very much yeah. so yeah. yeah and so i mean you you basically have to be a really terrible gamer to not win with futurists because you yeah. start off with such a major advantage um and there's no really no way to play catch up yeah and for me that's the peril of uh, variable player powers is got to make them interesting, but make sure that we're close to balanced. Yeah. Yeah. And the other one struggle I find with variable player powers, if, got, if they go wrong, is that you force people down a very narrow path. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's, a, that's a struggle, but I think it's worth kind of wrestling with that and trying to figure out a way that people are incentivized to go down that path, but also they're still free to explore yeah, other like, options. You get a variable player power it's like you get plus five gold from every trade action we're like well shit i guess i'm going to be doing a lot of trade actions yeah yeah and again this is where i kind of like um black rose wars approach which is you get a player power that effectively suggests two different paths you can go down and because later in the game you can draft in other yeah. powers you can choose to completely ignore both those paths and forge your own way through the game and still win yeah and i think that's what variable player power should do is it should be uh here's a suggestion yeah. on yeah. how to play the yeah. game yeah. not here's your yeah. path you can get that's right yeah all right uh your number two number two and actually i've realized now that my next two my number two and my number one are by the same designers <laughs> so i wonder if you can guess um so my number two is cosmic encounter oh, yeah. which is a really really old game but I think it is still a gem and some people hate it, but I adore it. And there are so many of those laugh out loud, memorable <laughs> moments. Like I just have this memory back at my old house. We had five or six other people playing the game and I was sitting there, I was playing the claw and basically the claw just lasered a trap, a card down there, a trap face down. And my card had been down there for about an hour and a half. It was a long game and no one had sprung this trap. 
And I was sitting on four victory points and need five victory points to win. And then someone falls for the trap. And I just leap off my chair and shout, The claw! <laughs> and that is still just such a memorable moment for me and all my friends yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and the thing is, like, Cosmic is almost the, as far as I know, the origin of Variable Black Arts. Yeah. It's like the first big game to go, this is our game, and what makes it special is that you're going to get an alien card and it's going to change it. Yeah, and I think they they deal with your problem really, really well. Actually, they say, yep, some of these are stronger than others. Some of these are absolutely bonkers overpowered. However, we're going to give all the other players the opportunity to balance the game for us. Yeah. You know, and so we can have four versus one, and that can actually be quite fun at times. If the one has a very strong power, the four can all team up against them and, and not ally with them and, and that sort of thing. And that's why I didn't call out Twilight Imperium that hard. Yes, yeah. because... Yeah, you got the Yolna in a six-player game. They're, they're going to have an advantage, but they can't beat two people. Yeah. They certainly can't beat five. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this one's not on my list, but the discussions actually made me realize that I originally was going to talk about Argent. Oh, yeah. Um, but um, following on from the Tapestry discussion uh, is Rising Sun. Oh, yeah. Because Rising Sun yeah. is like on the cusp of being maybe asymmetrical but it's really variable power because mm. everyone's following the same rules they're getting the points the same way um they're not playing a different game for their faction um they just have a different power that that makes it a little easier for them and the interesting thing about rising sun is that there are some markedly easier factions to play um who have more uh, who are I guess more powerful mm. and there is at least one faction which i think is the the, the red faction i can never remember their name um who are one of the hardest factions to play with because they're kind of this mercenary faction there's a lot of disadvantages they get and the advantages they get sound really good when you're reading it but when you're in play they're really really hard to win with um but I see that as a feature of Rising yeah. Sun because Rising Sun provides so many options mm. of factions, especially if you get the uh, Moon and Sun faction added to your... Uh, that, have 600 add-ons for that game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also because you can also uh, get all the various summonable monsters and so on, and that often can balance out any sort of disadvantage you have. But the appeal of it is that it's one of those games that when you're packing it away, you're going... I think I saw how I can make that faction more effective and I want to play that faction next time. Um, and none of the factions are like, ugh, I never want to play that faction. They've all got something really interesting. Like, you know, you've got one faction that has strongholds on the back of giant turtles that wander around <laughs> yeah, the map and you've cool. got another faction who can fly from one end of the map to another and you've got all the, you've got factions that are really lucky and factions that can get Ronin really easily. And they don't force you down a particular play style path, but they do definitely go with this faction. You'll probably want to pick fights more, yeah. but with this faction, you'll probably want to be a little bit more focused about getting different lands. And with this faction, you want to get loads of gods and monsters on your side. Yep. Um, so I think as a, as a counter to tapestries approach of having powerful groups and less powerful groups, I think what, um, rising sun does really well as it balances it all out so that even if you pick the difficult one as a new player you still have a chance to be able to claw back some of your loss for having 
not played the cap, played the faction effectively, yep. you can still mm. win. Mm. Good point. My number two is Pandemic the Cure, and the reason I find Pandemic the Cure fascinating is not only do you have variable player powers, but your physical components are different. Each character class has a unique set of dice. So you've got your, your, your special power or whatever, but you've got this physical distinct set of dice that are yours and yours alone. And they've got different sides on them, and every single player's dice makeup is different. So and I've got the box in front of me. I'm showing the guys. There are like 14-odd characters, each with their own different set of six dice. And I just love that it's a physical change, that you know you're playing that character because there's something tangibly physically different about playing them and uh, i think pandemic the cure is probably the best example of that in the mm. game of having that i feel like um, i've got a different thing mm. yeah that's really cool yeah all right sam your number one is it yes my number one is rex final days of an empire <laughs> yeah so <laughs> good, good before you, everyone says what about june uh, I have not played June, but I also am not that interested. I, the IP doesn't do anything for me. I haven't read the books. So I'm quite happy with this Twilight Imperium IP. I love things in space, as I yeah. said earlier. So Rex Final Days of the Empire is a great game. Yeah. And it really needs to be played with six players. So Absolutely. that every power is out there. So the first thing that I want to bring up with, with Rex is that there's alliances in the game. And so when you make an alliance with someone, you're not only saying, yep, we're not going to fight each other, we're going to win together, but you also hand them over a card and now they get to share your player power with you. They get some other benefit that they kind of add to their own player powers. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's that's one of the sort of unsung things in, in uh, Rex and June. Like, I'm going to ally with the guild. Cool. I don't have to pay for shipping anymore. Yeah. And it's I mean, huge. How awesome is that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to ally with the the emperor. Cool. I'll get half the money I spend on tech cards back. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And and some of these powers themselves are just so cool. Like the Shah, I think they're the Bene Gesserit and June. I'm not sure exactly who they are. But at the start of the game, they need to predict who they think is going to win yeah. the game and in what round they're going to win the yeah. game. And they just quietly put these tokens down there, face down, and then they are going to manipulate like crazy <laughs> to try and ensure that this player wins the game. And if that player wins the game at the time that they predicted they were going to win the game, then they win. The yeah. Shah wins, it's, not the other player. It's the greatest win condition in any game. Yeah. Like, yeah. No doubt. Like That has never been topped. And yeah. this game's ancient. Yeah. <laughs> I do house rule it when I play that they can't pick round eight, which is the final round. Okay. Because... There's another faction, which I think they've got a core ability as well. And their ability is, if no one wins, they win. Yeah. And so the Shah can sometimes predict them in the eighth round. I might I might have missed a rule, but that, that's kind of a bit of a, yeah. a cop-out, yeah. I think. Yeah. But I love this game. I love the player powers. It's really creative, so, and there's so many memorable moments. Has anyone done that? Has anyone won the, the predicted win yeah. in your games? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we had a six-round victory that was predicted. Oh, yeah. that, that's so epic when it, when it happens. Uh, I've seen it happen only once. Yep. And the brilliant thing about this was, it was like, I think, predicted for turn seven. And in turn six, they need the enemy alliance needed to capture this one base. And 
Benny Gessert player moved out of the base and left it undefended. <laughs> and the player was like, Don't fall for that trap. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, the thing is, they did that on turn six. Ah. And the thing was like, Oh, I'm going to take it, we'll win the game. Oh, I, I see what you're doing. If I take this, you're going to win. And like, oh, Maybe <laughs> not. And so the next turn passes, and start of the next turn, they move in and capture it. And then My the Benny Gessert's like, Oh, if you'd taken it last turn, you would have won. <laughs> that is brilliant. Oh, yeah. That was glorious. Uh, I was on the other side of the table to that one. And I was perfect. That's All right, nice. Conan, your last one. Okay, my last one is Horrified. Horrified? Yep. Yes. Um, I quite like the... Um, also, with like all the variable monster monsters, ways yeah. you can defeat monsters, but having all the... It's just such a classic pandemic kind of thing with the variable uh powers for the characters that are all kind of small but they give each of those characters quite a very different feel when you're moving around the board and you're doing things i i, I especially the there's the one with three movement points you can teleport yes like yes. that plays so differently and it's such a subtle difference you lose one movement point but you can teleport once just beside the board and yeah i, I found yeah. them really Quite different. And, and the character who can draw tokens from the adjacent yep. spot yep. rather than their spot is also it's really good in a game where placement is really important. Because yeah. so, you can just yeah. go around the, the main path and slurp up the stuff on yep. the sides. And then there's the one who gets the bonuses to the values of things, which can be really handy when you're trying to get that token mm. on the right shit. Yeah, no. So I, I think for for very some an example of very simple yep. changes creating a, a really dynamic experience when you play it that that game is still quite tops um, for me yeah and no. that that is quite an elegantly designed yeah uh, good good call I've only heard good things about this game great yeah. great little co-op like mm. it's not one of those games that is going to be like mm, serious game or guy project sort of yeah. thing but for families and for most people out there top notch oh it, it's on my never sell pile yeah yeah good, good call because if you sell it i'll buy it <laughs> <laughs> and um my final one is what i consider the almost the definitive variable player power game for me and this game is almost entirely based around variable player powers and it is small world uh, yeah, yep. good one. <laughs> yeah. And Small World, if you don't know the game, there are race tokens, they have one power, and then there are um, ability tokens that snap together with those race towers that have different things. So you, if you've got like 20 of each in the starting, or 12 of each or something in the starting box, I can't remember how many because I've got a bunch of expansions, so they're a crap lot. You start off with, say, 144, 200-odd combinations. The more you add, you end up with just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different combinations. And some of them are broken as hell they're like absolutely bonkers and some of them are just terrible yeah but you've got the option of skipping over them yeah and and picking which one you want and because you go th cycle through them like two or three times in a game um they're just these great decision points where you're like okay i'm going into decline mm, flying vampires yeah why not yeah let's do flying vampires or um marauder kobolds or whatever the combination is that you pull together and that's what makes small world like just such a neat game for me is it's just this endless variety of, of uh, combinations that you can play out and you're just never going to see the same ones game and game out mm. yeah good one yeah. it's awesome i assume everyone's played it yeah yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's always a struggle figuring out when to go on decline yeah you know? mm -hmm. but that's a really cool tension in the game yeah i actually find um 
Yeah, if you're playing like nine turns, you can go into decline twice quite quite comfortably. Yeah. And there's some races that you just you're in such a good position, you're like, no, don't want to go yeah, into decline. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you almost want to like start off, push out, then go into decline early, and yeah. then hopefully your second race Get the jump. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then people notice that and they're like, nah. <laughs> yeah, the brutal, unforgiving, monstrous game. Uh, yeah, small world. Uh, one of my favorite variable player power games. And that concludes our segment on variable player powers. Any final thoughts? I want to play. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We need we need to get some more games together. We need to play some more. We need to play some more Gaia Project. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Sam Sam taught me how to play Gaia Project. I said Terra Mystica is his favorite game, but I think Gaia Project's not far behind. I really enjoyed yeah. Gaia Project. It's it's yeah. a solid solid game. Yeah, it's one of those games I was looking at going, ah, oh, someone needs to teach me this. There's, there's a bit going on, but once I got into it, I was like, no, nah, I get this. This is this is a game I will play. Yeah, so. you were a shark. You got it so fast. <laughs> yeah. Did I win? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> so until next time, this is Jay, Sam, Conan, signing off from Three Mic'd Up Board Gamers. And if you enjoy this content, like it, subscribe to the channel, and check out our Patreon.